Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 41. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And today we're talking about the new dietary guidelines that were recently released by the U.S. government. Yeah, so keep in mind these are more of a general guidelines. There are different dietary recommendations that are published for various different disease states, as most of the listeners may know. Uh, one of the examples would be like a DASH diet for hypertension. But this guideline is more of a general dietary approach for all Americans two years and older to maintain good health and prevent chronic diseases. So the emphasis here is maintain good health and prevent chronic disease. Meaning if you have a chronic condition such as diabetes, hypertension, other cardiovascular condition, you should be following guidelines that come from either American Heart Association or American Diabetes Association on top of the general guidelines. And this was published by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And it was actually a subcommittee, and it's called the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And this was intended to cover five years of time period. So it was published in 2015, and it's intended to live until 2020, where it will be reevaluated at that time. And the one thing they did this year is there, or in this five-year period, there's really a focus on eating patterns rather than solely a focus on food groups and nutrients. We always go back to things like the food pyramid and looking at those as ways of saying you've got to do this and this, and there's really avoidance from that. And, and with that, I think, at least in my opinion, a little bit of a subtle push away from focus on like vitamin supplements or protein bars, supplement shakes, et cetera, really focusing on getting the nutrients from their from their food-based sources. So just uh, for that, there's a quote I pulled out of this. In some cases, fortified foods and dietary supplements may be useful in providing one or more nutrients that otherwise may be consumed in less than recommended amounts. And so the punchline being, if you're, you know, really, really, really try to get these things out of, of your diet and out of the foods you eat, but if you can't, then perhaps it may be okay to get them from, from fortification and supplements. Absolutely. And one thing to also consider when looking at these guidelines, uh, the major emphasis on is on eating pattern. So, you know, in order to lose weight, it's not that you go after an Atkin diet or a South Beach diet for a certain period of time and then you revert back to your old unhealthy eating habits. So what the advisory committee here was looking for is something that is lifelong, and that's why they call it the pattern. It should be adapted early on, and that's why there is a lot of limelight in news and whatnot that you see that there is an increased rate of childhood obesity in America, and the focus is actually improving these dietary guidelines so then the schools and other community um, providers that actually handle the food uh, items and uh, provisions of uh, diet for little kids also incorporate these guidelines actually and then um, decrease the rates of obesity. And this will be woven into their lifestyle that they will be following throughout their life and not just that one point at a period of time. Yeah, and it's and you, you touched on it that it's, it's population-based. And they, they made a point of it too to say that some these aren't just – you know, issues for just a few people. These are actually to the point of public health concerns. That's actually the exact, some of the wording they use to describe 
you know, how uh, under under uh, utilized some of these these vitamins are. So they talked, you know, just a couple examples before we get into the bigger picture. Calcium, potassium, dietary fiber, and vitamin D are under-consumed chronically across all pieces of the population. So, it, you know, it's it's really, again, getting these dietary supplement sources, not from a supplement, not, well, I'll just eat whatever I want, but, but take a vitamin D to, uh, supplement. But no, let's go ahead and identify sources and ways you can get these things through your foods and do it, educate across an entire lifestyle, lifespan. And that's actually a very good example you mentioned about vitamin D. So if you go on the National Osteoporosis Foundation website, you're actually able to calculate out how much vitamin D on top a patient would need from what's not coming from the diet. So you can put in their dietary intake and then figure out how much they're getting out of their diet and whatever that's not getting, it should be supplemented that way. So it should be a wholesome approach that you go after the foods first instead of using supplements. So, Dr. Patel, you mentioned that the emphasis was, you know, not so much of a food pyramid and things like that that we saw historically, but more on patterns of foods. What were some of the food patterns that we should be emphasizing for our patients? So some of the patterns that they focused on are inclusion of some substantial food groups and limiting certain food groups or certain items. So what they focused on is including variety of vegetables. And we will go over all of these in very much of detail. Um, whole fruits, um, again, emphasis is whole fruits and not fruit juices. Um, grains, and a half of these should be cons- consumed as whole grains fat-free or low-fat dairy, and then variety of protein, again, oils, uh, not butter. So that's another emphasis that's uh, been put on. What are some of the things that we should be avoiding then as opposed to things that we should be emphasizing in our diet? There were limitations placed on things such as saturated fat and then also are trans fats, which are ones that just to clarify, a trans fat is the kind that the body has a little bit of a more difficult time processing and breaking it down into energy so they can tend to sit around in the body and then be uptaken into the cardiovascular system where they can cause problems. And and those trans fats and saturated fats really should be less than 10% of the calories per day. And specifically avoiding foods like margarine, microwave popcorn, frozen pizza, coffee creamers, things like that that are shown historically to, to elevate the LDL. And some of the examples that you just mentioned, Dr. Schumann, are actually where the hidden trans fats are located. And that's why the advisory committee is really watching and telling people to actually watch, read the nutrition label, and weed out the trans fats. And then like in a lot of other places, you know, we're, we're in some cases staying away from these hard and fast numbers. So with cholesterol, used to say a limit of 300 milligrams per day, and that was according to the 2010 guidelines. We've moved away from explicitly stating, you know, thou shalt not get above this number, but still saying, you know, you need to avoid these things. So avoid fatty meats, avoid high fat dairy products, but not giving that specific cutoff anymore. And I think uh, very importantly, they emphasize uh, to avoid the added sugar. And uh, they're also asking just like the trans fat to limit this intake to about less than 10% calories per day. So putting into a perspective, if somebody is following a 2000 calorie diet, um, they should not be getting more than 200 calories per day that should come out of um, the sugars alone. If you do the math on that, then 200 calories per day of added sugar, if the typical sugar molecule is about 4 kilocalories per gram, that means you get about 50 grams of sugar per day that is added sugar. Right. That's not that much if you consume, let's say, a Mountain Dew, a 20-ounce Mountain Dew, something like that. And I, yes, and I think, and that the point is, and I think of clarity is that it's not saying that, you know, only 10% of your calories per day are sugar. They really emphasize that 
yeah, fruit, you know, the 100% fruit juices and the whole fruits are okay. Again, within moderation, it's appropriate to, can, to get your calories, your sugar calories from those sources. And so that's, I think, something to be clear for the general population is, oh, you know, we should all just be going to a low sugar, high fat, high protein diet. And no, that's not what they're saying here. They're just looking at the sources of the sugar really matters. Looking at, you know, the high fructose corn syrup and avoiding those things in particular. So in short, natural sugar is okay, but not the added sugars like fructose corn syrup. So did they comment on, let's say, any of the sweeteners that we see with like a diet soda as an example? Yeah, and that's a great question because the awareness has gotten to people and, you know, whether you say awareness or the advertisement on the part of uh, sweeteners like Locale or, you know, Truvia or things like that, they're saying that it's okay actually to consume the non-caloric sweetener because they're thinking that in any given amount, it doesn't matter how much the consumer will consume them, the estimated intake will not reach the acceptable uh, intake limit. So they're okay with people utilizing the non-caloric sweeteners. So even if you if you are going above and said, well, you know, the average person says that oh, I'm only getting, you know, two diet drinks, you say, well, I'm getting, you know, a certain number more than that. They found even at, at various extreme numbers, it's still not approaching a level which it would be concerning. Yeah, and when when I say deemed safer, this is according to the research uh, that is available up until now. I mean, there are tons of research that are going on in this particular subset of non-caloric sweeteners. And so if we have future evidence available that will say, you know, it, it causes, it maybe would not increase your sugar levels or, you know, put you at high risk of diabetes, but it might do some adverse event in future. So, but for right now, with the evidence that's available, it's safer to use. Another limitation they have put on, uh, along with the sugar, sodium. Sodium was brought in la limelight as well. And before that intake was anywhere like 3,500 milligrams per day was the recommendation. The new recommendation is less than 2,300 milligrams per day. And that is coming because there are a lot of research out there that shows that there is moderate association between increased sodium intake and risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, this association is not as strong when you look at the hypertension. We do have very strong evidence out there that the amount of uh, sodium intake increases and the risk of hypertension also increases. So if you look at the DASH diet then or American Heart Association recommendations, they for further decrease uh, in um, blood pressure, they recommend limiting the sodium intake to less than 1,500 milligrams per day. I can tell you to limit below 1,500 milligrams is incredibly difficult unless you're preparing 100% of your foods from fresh ingredients and things like that. To have such a strict regimen is very difficult to follow and very difficult to maintain, but certainly sodium is associated with more hypertension, so there has to be give and take there. Yeah, and I see a lot of patients for diabetes and hypertension in my clinic, and sometimes when I say, you know, tell me a little bit about the salt in your, use in your food, a lot of patients will come out and say, well, I don't add salt on top of my food. And that just doesn't stop there. If you're using processed foods, if you're eating fast food, if you're using canned items, uh, you know, cured items, they all got some sort of sodium because guess what? That's what's used as a preservative. Then the last limitation that they offered in their recommendations regarded alcohol. Uh, so Dr. Schumann, what can you tell me about their alcohol recommendations? So what, they, what they, they're recommending here is, is up to one drink per day for women and up to two drinks per day for men. And this is an important thing, just like in our clinic when we try to be specific about talking to individuals about alcohol consumption. What do you mean by one drink? So you do have to press a little bit. What they mean, you know, 12 fluid ounces of a, of a standard beer. So something that's a, 
higher alcohol volume generally has going to be having more calories and higher alcohol. So you generally, you know, for your, your standard lager beer, uh, 12 ounces, five ounces, fluid ounces of wine or one and up to one and a half ounces of distilled spirits. That's going to be what they consider to be a drink. And the other thing they mentioned too is that before you begin drinking, you really, it's not supposed to be something simply done for the health benefits alone. It's more if you drink, make sure to drink in moderation. But if you're, if you're a non-drinker who says, well, you know, maybe I, if I'm, you know, if I heard about this resveratrol or heard about red wine, so let me just start, start uh, sipping and nipping at it now. And they're saying, you know, at that point, you know, it's probably not worth it. But if you are a drinker, do it smart. If you're not a drinker, it doesn't necessarily mean you should begin at this point. So along the lines of, you know, healthy pattern across the lifestyle, some of the other key features of these guideline recommendations include a variety of foods. So again, not just keeping it to proteins or just the carbohydrates. You want to actually play with different food groups here. The amount of food you eat is also very important. And that kind of ties back to the ADA recommendation of portion control and plate method and, you know, use the measurements to weigh out your uh, different ingredients in the food. Choosing healthier foods and beverages. So we're not just talking about choosing healthier food, but actually choosing healthier beverages. And they're also recommending to support these healthy patterns. So this is not for the consumer, but healthcare providers, academic institutions, various community programs that provide meals to either younger kids or elderly uh, people in the community. Um, they should all be encouraged to use these guidelines and come up with meal plans accordingly. So I guess now to, to kind of get into some of the specific food categories and what they mentioned, I believe the first one they talked about was vegetables. And so what they've done here is broken them down into five subgroups based upon the nature of the vegetable, as well a lot of it too is what's contained nutrient-wise. And so there's five groups here they talk about your dark green vegetables, which would be your, your spinach, broccolis, and then we have your, your reds. So again, you got to think of your, your peppers, um, oranges again, similar peppers, our legumes, which is going to be our, our generally our, our beans, uh, our starchy vegetables, and then what they call an other, other category, which we'll get to in a second. And then they, they refer to, you know, any, any modality is appropriate. Fresh, frozen, canned, dried, cooked, or vegetable juices. With the one caveat, as mentioned before by Dr. Patel, canned, you do have to be aware of the amount of sodium used in there to preserve the preserved. So you want to keep that in mind. And so using low sodium selections for, for can would be a good idea. And then also to note that there's some overlap. And so I thought one of the things that, that I really liked looking at these is that they acknowledge some of the groups in which there is some overlap. So for example, uh, all the legumes except for green peas and green beans can also be can be counted really as a vegetable or as a protein. So if you're getting them, you can consider them in one of those two groups. And, uh, the, but, but with those two, so green peas are considered starch, and then green beans actually get lumped in with, in this other category with onions, iceberg lettuce, celery, and cabbage. And then overall, they're looking at is two and a half cups equivalent per 2,000 calorie diet. So you can ramp that up, you know, if your diet, uh, you know, is a higher caloric intake, or if it's lower, you need to go above or below that. But for the general 2,000 calorie diet, two and a half cups of those vegetables in, in one of those different kinds of ways. So moving from the vegetables, let's talk about food. We mentioned whole foods or 100% fruit juices that are without any added sugar. Obviously, your little kids are going to go towards that juice, um, you know, aspect more so than the fruit, but they're actually encouraging whole fruits, and that's because it brings that additional benefit of 
fiber intake as well. Again, just like the vegetables, this could be consumed in any given form. So fresh, canned, frozen, dried. Um, we have to be sure that the canned ones or the cup ones that are pre-made in a sugar syrup, um, that they have, uh, they're either without or with the lowest amount of added sugar. And then have to also consider the fact that the juices and the dry, dry fruits, if they are consumed more than the recommended amount, they can actually contribute towards extra caloric intake because they are um, calorie dense foods. And when you talk about looking at the amount per 2000 calorie diet example, that would be about two cup of equivalent. So if you have one cup of fruit juice that equivalates to one cup of whole fruit, um, it should be consumed more than four to six ounce fluid ounce per day. If you have dried fruit, sometimes people don't think that dried fruit is actually a fruit, but half a cup of dried fruit will equivalent to one cup of fruit. So here you're kind of seeing that pattern that it's better actually to eat uh, whole fruit. Again, not saying that 100% fruit juices or dried fruits are bad, but it, it's more beneficial and volume-wise, it's a little bit more uh, benefit to eat the whole fruit. I think overall it kind of makes sense that uh, selecting something that is less processed, that has gone through less things to get it to the final product makes sense that you should be going more toward the less processed, more raw type option as opposed to the very processed option. Absolutely. And actually with that being said, Dr. Kane, that's a perfect segue into our next group, which is looking at the grains. And what they specifically mention is more of those whole grains, which again are, are the generally non-processed. So rather than removing the the outside of the, of the kernel, which is what we do when we make our processed white flours or more simple types of, of sugars and starches. So things like brown rice, quinoa, and oats, where you're getting that entire bran. And so they, um, and then specifically the one also avoiding ones with high saturated fat, added sugar, or sodium. So cookies, cakes, snack foods, things like that, not only are they processed, but then they go in there and add a whole lot of these other pieces to it. So again, looking at getting them in their simplest form and really limiting the amount of other items you're, you're adding into it. And they're looking at six ounce equivalents per day, and really 50% of that, or about three ounces, should come from whole grains. And so actually another recommendation if you're focusing on whole grains, because there's this health craze, you know, the superfoods and whatnot, and quinoa is supposedly the celebrity food nowadays. But if you're going... Um, if all your grains are coming from whole grains. They're actually recommending to include some of the folic acid fortified breakfast cereals too. Um, this is a good way of getting uh, additional folic acid. And again, these are fortified, so it's not like the, the cereal itself contains uh, folic acid, but this is kind of looking at the neural tube defects and some of the pregnancy-related complications that can come through. And then just one clarification, they sometimes use words like fortified and enriched, and fortified generally refers to what you've done is you're giving back something that wasn't already there, as Dr. Patel mentioned. And then refined grains, they mentioned treating enriched grains because, again, referring to the, the some of the content, the folic acid that is removed from the processing, and you're giving back what was there but taken away. And so that the latter would be considered enriching. So you're saying fortified means that they add something that wasn't there. Enriching means that they took it out and then they put it back. Correct. Got it. So in terms of the recommendations for dairy, they recommend fat-free or low-fat dairy. Uh, so low-fat would be like 1% or less. Some dairy options could include yogurt, cheese, uh, soy beverages that are fortified. Uh, this would not include almond, rice, coconut, or hemp milk. You can get these for your calcium intake, but they don't really count towards your dairy spectrum. The recommendations are two cups per day for children that are two to three years old, two and a half cups if you're four to eight years old, or if you're nine to 18 or 
were up, so adults, three cups per day of dairy would kind of qualify you for that. Yeah, and a lot of the time when I talk about, what, tell me about your dairy intake, oh, I don't really drink milk. But then there could be a lot of hidden sources of uh, cheese and, and forms of pizza, you know, adding cheese on their salad, adding a um, piece of cheese on their sandwiches and stuff like that too. So it's always good to ask further questions to assess the intake. And I think another, the next category they talk about is, is protein. So again, that I know in, you know, this big lonely thing of protein bars, protein shakes, protein supplements, but really what they focused on is breaking them down into different kinds of categories. That there are protein sources for everyone, whether you're a vegetarian, whether you're a vegan, whether you eat anything put in front of you. So in animal sources, you're looking at, you've got your lean meats and your poultry and your eggs. And then what's interesting, they're really focused on seafood. And one of the things I noticed in here is talking about specifically eight ounce equivalent of seafood per week per 2,000 calorie diet. So again, if your calorie intake is more or less than that, then uh, you can ramp that up. But that, the main thing for that is because of the polyunsaturated fatty acids, the uh, EPA and the DHA that are within those fishes, they really strongly recommend getting that eight ounce serving at least one per week. And very importantly, um, I'm glad you mentioned that seafood was actually given a little bit more attention in the guideline. Um, I don't want consumer to think that shellfish is one of the recommendations behind the seafood recommendation. It's actually healthy fish like salmon, uh, halibut, tuna fillets, and things like that. Uh, again, when it comes to tuna consumption, it's not one of those tuna salads that are fortified with mayonnaise. Um, they should be just plain old without added fat uh, type of seafood. Uh, items. And the other interesting thing is with the exception of eggs, each of the above, so the lean meat, poultry, fish, they're sources of, of heme iron. And there's some evidence that I had come across in the past, and I was glad to see that they brought it up too, that heme iron may be better absorbed or more bioavailable in the body compared to non-heme iron. And so that doesn't mean that plant-derived sources aren't, you know, you're going to be anemic, but it just means you may need to get more or work to make sure that they're being absorbed appropriately. So the vegetable sources unsalted nuts and seeds, legumes, soy, 5.5 ounce equivalents per day per 2,000 calorie diet. Again, those you can get your iron, but you just may want to be aware that the absorption may be a little more decreased. Yeah, and I think the important word over there is unsalted because, again, we want to limit the source of uh, sodium as much as possible. So the one last thing that's left that the guideline calls for attention is oils. Again, it's not like you're sitting and drinking a cup of oil, but we use the oils to cook our foods with. And so what they're saying is, you know, you want to use fats in form of oil. So oil is liquid at room temperature because there are high percentages of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids in there. The way I tell my patients in the clinic is whatever that is liquid at room temperature, it's going to be liquid in your blood vessels and whatever it's solid at room temperature, it's going to be solid in your blood vessels. So they kind of get the picture is what I'm talking about when I mention oils. And when you look at the scientific trials and studies and stuff, they have found that there is more evidence exists for cardiovascular benefit out of uh, PUFA or PUFA, we call it, polyunsaturated fatty acids versus the monounsaturated fatty acids, but both of these can be beneficial. So um, like you mentioned earlier, uh, consuming seafood, uh, one of the rationale is because higher level of PUFA. So some of the healthier oil example I would give to my patient is um, canola oil, corn oil, olive, peanut, sunflower, safflower, soybean oil. Actually, they also have identified certain food items, not like beans that you extract the oil out of, but things like nuts, seeds, again, seafood, um, olives and avocado are a really good source of healthy oils too. 
a lot of craze you might have noticed in the news uh, lately that has been after the coconut oil. We certainly do not know the pure health benefit that comes out of it yet. Um, it's more of a celebrity driven uh, type of uh, advertisement, but do know that oils such as coconut oil, palm oil, or palm kernel oils are high in saturated fat. And the way you can tell is that if these oils are left at room temperature, they're going to turn solid unless that room temperature is a little bit on the warmer side. You have to heat them up to become um, liquid. So again, that happens because there are more saturated fatty acids in them. So Dr. Patel, you're saying that you would not recommend this more of a fad coconut oil versus let's say an olive oil or a canola oil or something like that? Yeah, just purely based on the composition of the coconut oil, uh, palm oil and palm kernel because they got more saturated fats. And the guidelines calls for actually limiting the amount of saturated fat to less than 10% in their regular calorie diet. Um, that's why I would recommend against it and use more of the healthier oils such as canola, corn, olives, peanuts, etc. So in thinking about, you know, where do these recommendations come from? Generally speaking, when we think about dietary uh, clinical trials, these are actually incredibly difficult to run and have a lot of issues with internal validity because oftentimes the way that they assess whether coconut oil is a good oil or a bad oil is by having a patient keep a diary. And oftentimes the diaries aren't as accurate as they could be. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, because these aren't randomized trials, they actually are finding associations versus causations, meaning that um, maybe people who tend to uh, eat canola oil are also more often smokers or something like that. So we have a lot of confounders that can kind of hinder some of our evaluations. With that said, we do have some good evidence about as an example, Mediterranean diet with cardiovascular disease outcomes. That would be definitely the exception to the rule. But when taken as a whole, we do see trends in the data, and that's where some of these recommendations come from. So in terms of thinking about the recommendations from the guidelines, what can we say about the clinical effects that we would anticipate if a patient were to follow some of these recommendations? It's a good question, uh, Dr. Kane. So again, as you mentioned, there's some strong evidence for some of these and a little bit less or so for others. So for a strong evidence, uh, right off the bat, reduced risk of cardiovascular disease that, that's been seen. So that's, that's going to be the one we're mostly hanging our hats on that was emphasized throughout the document. And then there's some moderate evidence for reduced risk of uh, type 2 diabetes, certain types of cancers, and then also the likelihood of being overweight or obese. And, you know, besides putting out the, the strength of the evidence, they're talking about the consistency of the evidence, too, between these food groups. So what they found that, you know, when they looked at all the studies and trials and, you know, retrospective data that was there, they found that high intake of vegetables and fruits yield the very consistent outcomes. Uh, then recommendation was slightly less consistent in terms of consuming whole grains. And it was very less consistent when it comes to fat-free intake of the dairy or low-fat uh, dairy intake, seafood, legumes, and nuts. So we know for sure that, you know, when they say that you need to eat uh, green leafy vegetables, you know, healthy vegetables and a variety of source of fruits and stuff. It's, it's really high consistency and they're basing it off of various different trials that are saying the same thing. So one thing that always comes to mind when we think about what recommendations are we providing to patients is that sometimes patients have specific dietary requirements that are either voluntary or involuntary that um, they need to follow. So as an example, eating meat or not. 
know, certain things that they can or can't have in a diet because of allergies. So what things did the guidelines uh, do to address some of these more special cases that, you know, are special dietary circumstances for patients? Good question. And I think, you know, they're really, really focusing, like we discussed earlier, on the pattern of diet. Um, so keeping the cultural and personal preferences in mind, they've actually put out three different appendices. Um, so one is for the U.S. style eating pattern. So if you're, you know, more accustomed to meat, potato, vegetable type of diet, um, then they have recommendation or appendices for a Mediterranean style eating diet. So this is more vegetable, whole grains, um, that's healthy seafood um, and fruits and vegetables type of diet. And then there is also an appendices for a vegetarian eating pattern. Uh, and if you open up this appendices, what it does, there are tons and tons of tables out there for uh, somebody who's on an 800 calorie diet a day or a 10, you know, 1000 calorie diet a day up until 2500, 2600 calorie diet per day. So um, a lot of examples are given as to how much and what amount of what certain food groups that person should be consuming to meet the caloric requirement. So in looking at the guidelines, they actually have a, a very nice website. Um, but in going through the website and the guidelines, I was thinking to myself, you know, if I was just a normal consumer, this would be a lot of information. There's no way that I would really kind of consume this data, if you will, um, on my own as a, a normal consumer. And they're actually very clear that these guidelines are not for consumers. This is for healthcare providers and policymakers to say, um, you know, this is what the U.S. government recommends, so therefore our school lunches will look like X, Y, and Z, or this is what I will be recommending to my patients, or maybe the ADA, when they come up with their guidelines, will take a look at these guidelines and say, how should we influence our recommendations based on what we're seeing? And that's absolutely correct. Um, even though the, the guideline document looks very neat and nicely organized and there are some um, tools that you can play around with to see uh, how you can substitute from less healthy items to healthier items including beverages snacks uh, desserts etc etc but i definitely agree that this tool is more going to be serving for healthcare professionals to educate their pet patient and uh, nutrition educators as well as the institutions that are um, responsible for meal development for elderly and younger uh, consumers uh, to summarize, I think the, the way to kind of wrap things up is to focus on the five things that the guidelines emphasized above all else. And they had a list of five things that are very accessible within the guidelines. And the first thing that we've talked about a lot is to follow a healthy eating pattern across your lifespan. So not just eating tuna all day, but making sure that you have a good variety of proteins, good variety of vegetables and fruits, and that it's not just something that you do uh, when you turn 50, that it's something that you encourage children to be doing all the way through adulthood. Second emphasis is on variety of food, like you said, not just tuna all day. Looking at the density of the nutrient as well. So something that will give you uh, 200 calorie might look like a, a tablespoonful versus, you know, a cup full of a healthier item could be just as much of a calorie, but it's going to make you fuller and it's going to satisfy your hunger while you're not going to consume a whole lot of calories out of that. And the amount of food too. So portion control, um, um, plate method, um, you know, actually um, sizing out your portions uh, of various different items on your plate too. And then the third one was to limit calories from additives such as sugars and saturated fats. Again, not that you should have, you know, completely avoid sugars, but make to get them from pure plant-derived sources rather than from additives. And the same thing with avoiding saturated fats, moving more towards those polyunsaturated fats, and then reducing sodium intake, which again, 
both this and those sugars. It can also be done by, by looking at, you know, the sources you get. So if you are choosing things like canned fruits and canned vegetables, you're looking for those with lower sugar added and lower sodium respectively. But then overall, reduced sodium intake is important. And the fourth guideline from the guidelines was to shift to healthier foods and beverage choices. So there's two things there. One, beverages matter. Then two, to think about how can you transition from a pasta plate that is very high in calories to a similar pasta plate that doesn't have as many calories but is just as tasty. So that shift from uh, less healthy to more healthy is something that uh, they encourage as well. And the last point they encourage is to support these healthy patterns of eating. And that starts from, you know, you being um, a parent to a toddler, you know, starting healthy at home, um, schools providing healthier lunches and having uh, certain health patterns or, you know, cafeteria food at work as well. So all the different institutions and uh, families should be considering this healthier lifestyle. Now, does that mean that, you know, in future, all of our vending machines will be equipped with carrot chips and, you know, you go to a movie theater, they're going to serve, uh, I don't know, hummus and, you know, vegetables instead of a hot dog? We don't know that yet, but definitely uh, looking at the obesity epidemic and increase uh, chronic conditions in the United States altogether, um, something to consider um, that we should be all following the new dietary guidelines. So with that, I think that kind of wraps up the 2015 dietary guidelines. I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And eat smart. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.